You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. Well, good morning. So glad you could join us here. A special welcome to those watching online. Glad you could be with us in that way to hear from God's Word and worship with us as a church family. Uh, Well, today we're uh, taking a a little break from Romans, and we are starting a three-part series from the Gospel of Mark entitled, Alone. Uh, This morning, we'll focus on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was commemorated by today on Palm Sunday. And then on Good Friday, Pastor Trevor will take us to Gethsemane, where Jesus was alone in the garden. And then on Resurrection Sunday, the theme is alone in His glory. By the way, before we get too far, I just want to make sure you know all the things we have planned for this week. Uh, We've written kind of a simple family devotion for Holy Week that you can use uh, with your family. That was in the newsletter, and we'll send out an email on that tomorrow as well. Uh, There's prayer and worship happening this week, both Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, that's at 6.30. It's going to be on Zoom, uh, with including like a little 10-minute kids session at the beginning of that. On a Good Friday, we have two services. Many of you have already registered for the 9 or the 10.30. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, we have, or at least right now, we have three services, 7, 9, and 11. Not too many takers for the 7 just yet, but um, maybe, the, maybe there's some enthusiastic sunrise service kind of people, but that's kind of our backup service. We'll see if, if, if it's needed. Uh, if the other two get full. Uh, just a note, there's no children's ministry at Good Friday or the uh, Omnia 7 o'clock Easter service. And uh, yeah, all these details in the newsletter, on the Church Center app, and you do need to register for those services as well. By the way, if you have registered, um, you don't need to register infants or if you're serving, just so we can max out our space. So that's what's coming up this week. All right, back to the Gospel of Mark. I'm super excited about this little mini-series, uh, something Pastor Trevor and I have been talking about for a number of weeks here, and it, it, I just really think it's, it's fitting, and my heart has been so full as I've been spending time in the Gospels. I think we're all aware of the challenges of this past year. Uh, we've all made adjustments. We've all had to change plans to shift our expectations and settle into kind of this different way of life. And in the process, we've had to come to grips with some level of aloneness. I'm talking about everything from extended cabin fever to postponed, repostponed, and then canceled trips. I'm talking about prolonged time away from family and friends to weddings and funerals that had less people than you would have preferred to invite. I'm talking about the frustrating hindrances of what can feel like never-ending regulations, and everything else that was a part of these last several months. In some way or another, we've all experienced what it means to be alone, alone without friends and family, alone in our viewpoints, alone in our financial, physical, or spiritual struggles, alone in feeling misunderstood or misrepresented. The irony is that we're not alone in our aloneness. It's a common, every person kind of experience. Uh, And we don't need a global pandemic to remind us that we sometimes feel lonely or 
distant from others. The reality is, at times, we feel like others just, just don't understand. We feel missed or, or unseen. So we all know what it is to be alone. It's a universal human experience, and that means, that means the good news is, in His humanity, Jesus can relate. He was familiar with the full range of human experience, yet without sin. And as we'll see, during his earthly ministry, Jesus was often alone. In fact, no one has experienced aloneness like him. No one has ever been so isolated, so excluded, so misunderstood, so misrepresented, and yet so unrivaled in glory. No one has been as alone as Jesus because he stands alone as Lord and Savior. In Mark's Gospel, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was alone in the crowd because he had a different agenda. God's program clashed with the agenda of the people. You see, the crowd wanted deliverance from suffering of sickness and oppression, but Jesus offered deliverance from the suffering of sin and death. And he, he resolved in a, kind of an unyielding commitment to his mission. And in a sense, Jesus had tunnel vision. He was laser-focused on his most important purpose. He, was, he had a single-minded commitment to die for sin and rise in victory. This was his mission, and the crowd missed it. They were looking for the self-made Messiah of their own making. They wanted God to change their earthly circumstances, to liberate them from physical poverty and persecution. Jesus, however, came to change their spiritual condition and liberate them from spiritual poverty. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So with a heart full of compassion and a desire to rescue his people, he came as the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the one who would be crushed under the weight of his father's wrath. Along the way, en route to Calvary, Jesus prepared his disciples for ministry. He performed miracles as a preview of the future kingdom, and he demonstrated that he is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus, indeed, can sympathize with our weakness and our aloneness, but Jesus does more than sympathize. He rescues us from ourselves and from the dark emptiness of sin. What we'll see this morning is that Jesus was alone in a crowd because he had a calling only he could complete, a kingdom only he could establish, and a compassion only he truly understood. So with that, I just want to pray again, and we're just going to dive right into the Gospels here this morning. Let's pray and just ask God to work in our midst. God, it's such a, a privilege, it's such a joy to be able to come and speak about the life of Christ. Uh, much or um, some of the things we'll speak about today may be familiar to our hearts, but I pray that you would allow us to engage into the familiar and see that these truths are praiseworthy. These truths are precious, and they are the good news of the gospel. Lord, bring our hearts deep into communion with you, even here this morning. We ask, Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see Christ more, understand your word more, and that we would uh, rest in it, 
and it would cause us to worship and obey. So accomplish your good purposes here this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, you can turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. We will eventually get to chapter 14. Uh, To give you an idea of where we are headed, the first point will really kind of set the scene. It will kind of give us some of the events leading up to Palm Sunday. And then the second point will focus on actual triumphal entry. And the last point will briefly consider two events that happened after Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. So we're about to go on a journey so we can prepare our hearts to worship the crucified king during Holy Week. And uh, let me just say, we, we got a lot to cover this morning, so this might be kind of one of those sermons where you just kind of take it in. You just kind of hear about the life of Christ, hear about these kind of events that propelled him towards Holy Week, towards the triumphal entry, and ultimately towards the cross. I think when you take it collectively, when you, when you kind of hear and, and feel the weight of the theme, uh, it just leads to much worship and I hope a response of just trusting him more. So with that, we begin with the highlights from Jesus' ministry to show that he was alone in his calling. Jesus was almost always in the middle of a crowd, uh, but he was alone in his calling. But the crowds often viewed him as kind of this, this miracle worker who could meet their personal needs. Uh, but miracles, you see, the miracles of Jesus, they don't actually, aren't actually meant to meet the personal needs of those whom he's serving, but rather to demonstrate that he is qualified to fulfill his actual calling, which is to save sinful men and women from death and destruction. In fact, at times, Jesus even told the people to stop clamoring for signs, because if you focus too much on the miracles, you miss the Messiah. Consider what happened after Jesus fed the 5,000. Uh, the crowd was convinced that he was a prophet like Moses, who could deliver them from Rome just as Mo- Moses had delivered the people from Egypt. Um, after all, Jesus provided a sort of manna from heaven. Uh, but what the crowd and the people failed to see was beyond their physical needs, to understand that Jesus satisfies a much deeper and more significant spiritual need. He is the bread of life. So according to John 6.15, while they were ready to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So while thousands of people wanted him as their king, he fled to be alone. God was going to establish Jesus' kingdom, but through suffering, not popularity. Well, after a short time, we read in Mark 8.27 that Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? That's an important question. Do the the crowds understand Jesus' mission and calling? Well, no, not exactly. So Jesus asked his disciples, do the disciples understand his mission and calling? He asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter asked him, you are the Christ. Well, that's a good answer, but but Jesus still needed to clarify and redefine what it means to be the Christ. So in the next verses there in Mark 8, he explained that the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer and die and rise from the dead. After, and Peter, the guy who had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, rebukes him. He says, no, 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 you don't understand Jesus, that's not 
what the Messiah does. You got your role all mixed up here. Peter couldn't accept a suffering Savior. In fact, even after Jesus was transfigured in glory and, and the Father identified him as his Son, and even after Jesus predicted his crucifixion again, James and John asked Jesus if they should call down fire on the Samaritans. Again, they're just not getting the mission. They're not understanding that Jesus came to save all nations, all people, groups. You fast forward several months and Jesus remains unwavering in his resolve to go to Jerusalem and to be the Passover lamb. Everything is leading towards Jerusalem uh, only months before Palm Sunday, Jesus was actually in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. Uh, during that visit, Jesus taught that He is the Son of God, one with the Father. As a result, what happens? The Jewish leaders wanted to arrest and stone Him. They too missed it. Even those who knew the Old Testament so well failed to see the Messiah. In that case, they, they didn't arrest Jesus. He escaped traveled about 40 kilometers east to Perea, where John the Baptist had ministered. And there, well, what happens? People come and tell him that it's Herod's desire to kill him. Herod now wants an opportunity to kill Jesus. But Jesus was unfazed. Listen to this. In Luke 13, 32, this is how Jesus responded to the news that Herod wants to kill him. He said, go and tell that fox Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, and I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus says, you know what? I decide when and how I die. That's not up to Herod. Jesus alone has the authority to lay down his life and take it up again. But he does, however, need to get to Jerusalem because the appointed time was drawing near. So, Jesus walks to Bethany now. He visits Mary and Martha. Lazarus had died. So, when, when Jesus arrives, Lazarus had died. You know the story. And Jesus wept. He comforts Mary and Martha, but he also weeps over the reality of the consequences of sin, that sin produces death, that sin has produced this broken and fallen world, so he weeps. He knows that he must defeat death with his own death on the cross. So he raised Lazarus from the dead as a preview of his greater resurrection. Many believed on that day, but the Pharisees continued to plot Jesus' death. Now, this time, it's almost time for the Passover, and everyone wondered if Jesus was going to be in attendance. The heat is getting hotter. The Pharisees are being louder. And in fact, they've told everybody, if you see Jesus in Jerusalem, let us know his whereabouts so that we can arrest him. Well, at that point, Jesus went northward, all the way up to Galilee, some hundred kilometers up to Galilee, so that he could join the pilgrims who would be making their way down to Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus is not running away. He's just preparing his disciples. Ultimately, Jesus' calling was to die in the place of sinful men and women and then rise from the dead in victory. And again, this must happen in Jerusalem. 
So as they're walking from Galilee, he's he's teaching them, he's performing miracles, and he's on his way to be crucified. So he comes all the way down, goes around Samaria through Perea, and then across over to Bethany. He arrives in Bethany once again. We read about that in Mark 14. So if you're there, we're in Mark 14 now. All that you just see leading up, leading Jesus up to this time where he is getting ready to enter in to Jerusalem for Holy Week. The verses that Trenton read for us describe the very last event before Jesus' triumphal entry. Mark 14.3, we read, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, wait a minute. I don't know if you noticed this, but why are we in Mark 14? Because the triumphal entry is in Mark 11. I thought you said this was the event, the last event before he goes into Jerusalem. I, Am I missing something? Well, carry along by the Holy Spirit. Mark actually placed this event out of sequence. You've got to remember, the four Gospels are not strict biographies. They're, they're written as, um, a, with a theological purpose. So it seems Mark wanted to show us the connection between Judas' selfish greed and Judas' betrayal of Jesus. So he puts those events next to each other so we can see the connection theologically. Uh, Matthew did the same in his gospel, but if you, if you read the accounts in the gospel of John, that's where you get the, the, really the chronological order. And John comes to Bethany, he's anointed, and then triumphal entry. In, in the gospel of John, we also learn that the house of Simon the leper is where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus live. Perhaps Simon is their father. We also learn from John that uh, Martha... The ever-hospitable Martha is serving, and it's actually Mary is the one who anoints Jesus. And she did so with very expensive oil. Uh, This is about a year's worth of wages. Now, Mary was not wealthy, and she didn't have a high-paying job. Uh, So the flask was likely a family heirloom. I mean, this is the most precious and meaningful thing and valuable item that she owns. So what does Mary do? She, she broke an irreplaceable gift and poured it, her life savings, on the feet of Jesus. I mean, what an incredible act of worship. Not everyone saw it that way, though. There were some who were angry. They were angry that the anointment, this extravagant gift was just a waste Um, From John's Gospel again, we learn that Judas especially was hot and upset. Judas was worked up because after all, I mean, this could have been sold and the money could have been given to the poor. John tells us he said that because Judas would often steal from the money bag. It is true, though. It is true. The money could have been, the ointment could have been sold. The money could have been given to the poor. That's true, but it's not best. Near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples still didn't understand his calling. He didn't come to inspire social reform or to inspire random acts of kindness. He came to die, and Mary was preparing him for his burial. In that moment, Mary understood. She honored her Savior. She anointed her King. 
And as a result, at least by the disciples, she was mocked and rebuked. Uh, she was brought into Jesus' lifelong experience of aloneness in his calling. She experienced a glimpse of what it was like to prioritize Jesus' crucifixion mission over earthly circumstances. Perhaps Jesus' empathy when her brother died and his power to raise Lazarus from the dead had transformed her and given her an eternal perspective. Perhaps she could accept that Jesus must die because she was believing that he is the resurrection and the life. You see, much like the the expensive gifts that the three wise men had brought the baby Jesus, Mary was part of something bigger than herself. And her simple sacrificial devotion left a legendary legacy that we still talk about today. Uh, but there's something we need to see in this account. It, it was not only the lavish gift that Jesus praised. It, it was not only the costly kind of sacrifice that she made. You see, it seems Mary was the first and most notable person to understand that the gospel is realized and the kingdom established through humility and suffering. Her act, her gift, her her generosity cannot be forgotten because she understood that Jesus' life was leading to his death. And the mystery of the gospel points to a suffering Savior. She anointed him for his burial. Now, it was culturally unacceptable for a woman to interrupt a men's gathering unless she was serving, but Mary's purpose transcended cultural norms, and Jesus noticed. He told the disciples, leave her alone. The disciples' rebuke disgraced the woman and her gift, but it also considered Jesus unworthy of the gift, right? It could have been sold to the, and given to the poor, but... Why not give it to the Son of God? They judged her actions and decided it was wasteful, but Jesus praised her motives and called it beautiful. Mary's gift showed that she understood, at least in part, Jesus' calling. Here's another example on a long list of situations where Jesus must go to Calvary alone. Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples of his impending death, but they offered no gift. Uh, they, they, act, they offered no act of worship. What they failed to do, one woman did courageously and extravagantly. During his earthly ministry, the crowds failed to understand Jesus' redemptive purpose. They fashioned him into their own self-made Savior. Jesus was thus alone in his calling. And when we think about that on a more, kind of more personal level, you know, our calling is not Jesus' calling, right? We're not, we're not called to be crucified for the sins of the world, but we are called to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow after Him. We are called to live in this world that will hate you because you follow after Christ. And we, as we live for Christ, open up ourselves to be misunderstood, misrepresented, to have this sense of aloneness in a world. Not within the church, we pray, but we can relate, we can understand. And ours is much that we must stay on mission to be ambassadors for Christ. We can also say that we don't want to be, we want to avoid 
being like the crowd, misrepresenting Christ and misunderstanding Him. Uh, sure, sometimes we, we serve our own agenda, don't we? We sometimes fashion Jesus into our own image, uh, don't we? May God's Word correct our crowd mentality and help us fix our eyes on the true Christ as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. May we see His mission. May we see His person and respond in worship. Well, that was a lot just to kind of see the, the life and the life of Christ, some of His calling that, that kind of built up to this moment. The big day where Jesus would arrive in Jerusalem. And for that, we turn back to Mark chapter 11 to see that Jesus was alone in His coronation. Before now, Jesus had refused most public praise as the Messiah. He had not been very public in his identity as the Messiah. Well, that was about to change. Right? Jesus was going to, this, Jesus was going to storm into Jerusalem, overcome Rome, appoint the Pharisees as the official leaders, and empower the people with abundant, prosperous life, right? Is that what Mark 11 says for you guys? No. Okay, well then, he's at least going to do lots of earth-shattering miracles. I mean, you know, heal the people, cast out demons, raise the dead. This is the culmination. This is the grand finale. This is the out-with-a-bang moment, right? No, no, not exactly. You see, Jesus' earthly end is similar to his earthly beginning. Humble and unassuming. Sure, there was some fanfare, but nothing like what you'd expect for the Son of God. Look at it with me in Mark 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent, out, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Now Bethphage was a small kind of suburb of Jerusalem located near the Jericho Road. The, the path to Jericho. Bethany was right next to Bethphage and was a slightly larger town, about three and a half kilometers southeast of Jerusalem, also on the road to Jericho. So this is kind of the last pit stop, the last rest area when you're heading into Jerusalem. And it was a common place for Jesus to build it. Both villages were on the Mount of Olives, which is about 300 feet above Jerusalem. So Jesus was almost ready to go into the city. But there was preparations to make. And Jesus ensured that his disciples would be successful in their preparations. Look at verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So, I mean, if nothing else, here is an obvious example of Jesus' divine foreknowledge. I think it's unlikely that he had prearranged borrowing the colt, right? I mean, it just says the disciples went in, they found the colt and they borrowed it. When asked what they were, 
what they were doing, the disciples appealed to Jesus' divine sovereignty and his reputation. I say divine sovereignty because Jesus knew the cult would be there and ready. He knew they could find it. And to his reputation because no doubt everyone in Bethany loved Jesus. That The resurrection of Lazarus was still fresh in their mind. So they would be willing to lend him their cult. According to Matthew, the disciples retrieved a colt and a donkey, actually. Uh, apparently, the mother came along. Perhaps the donkey carried the supplies, or perhaps Jesus rode the donkey partway and then the colt as they entered the city. Either way, they got a donkey and a colt. It was an unwritten colt because only the king rode the royal donkey, right? It, it was reserved for one man, in this case, King Jesus. And, and the coats were put on the donkey as kind of a makeshift saddle, right? No one had ridden it before. It didn't have a saddle. So here this colt comes. They put their coats on the donkey so that it can have a saddle. In this case, riding the colt communicated certain things. Uh, one, of the, one of the things it communicated was that Jesus comes in peace. Uh, Jesus comes not to begin a war or any sort of strife. He wasn't mounting a war horse. Uh, that was for another visit. Interesting, it was actually tradition for pilgrims who went to Jerusalem to walk into Jerusalem. That, that was, there's some place in the Jewish literature where it would say, you walk into Jerusalem. But Jesus, he's riding. And he's riding, I think, for very specific purposes. He wants to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah, yes, but he also wants to draw attention to himself. This is the time where Jesus wants to say, here I am, the Messiah coming in to the city. He's drawing attention to himself as the promised one. One commentator even called it blatant messianic self-advertisement. And as we'll see, the crowd willingly obliged. They were ready to appoint a new political leader in the line of David. Thus, Jesus was, he was keenly aware of, kind of the, the messianic prophecies involved in the moment. He knew what was happening here. He knew that what he was communicating and what he was uh, kind of claiming to be, the Messiah as it were. He was riding into Jerusalem announcing himself as that Messiah King that Israel was waiting for. Well, the people with Jesus recognized this and they responded in verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Now it was, it was common to spread uh, flowers or branches for kings. Uh, so the people that are with him, they honor Jesus with this kind of red carpet treatment. John's Gospels identifies those as palm branches, which can be a really a, a sign of victory or triumph. We'll see this in Revelation when Jesus comes again. Altogether, the coats on the animal, the coats on the road, the branches, the shouts of praise, all pointed to Jesus as the royal Davidic Messiah. But I want, to, I want you to notice something here. At this point, Jesus is still outside the city. Uh, the, the, thus, the crowd gathered here with him was actually the group of pilgrims that he had, he had gone up to Galilee 
and then they've come down together, right? These are the people that are with Jesus. Along the way, he went to Jericho, performed some miracles in Jericho. In fact, actually, that's where he healed Bartimaeus, the blind Bartimaeus. It's likely that Bartimaeus is even with him. It says that Bartimaeus got up and followed him. So with Jesus at this point, outside of the city, are the supporters from Galilee and Jericho. So, what that means is that these are not necessarily the same people who call for Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. Uh, Those people are inside the city, and those people are more intimidated by the Pharisees. Perhaps, I don't know, there could be some mixture, but perhaps these disciples, these supporters, just went into hiding. They just scattered when Jesus became arrested. Hard to know with certainty. That's not to say that the people understood what was happening here. That's not to say the people... uh, honor Jesus as the, the true Messiah that he is. I don't know, they failed to understand his mission, and they, they failed to understand the nature and timing of his kingdom. Uh, plus, they also failed to recognize that Jesus was riding on a donkey, right? Uh, I mean, the irony here, that they're, they're welcoming Jesus, and here comes our leader, he's going to take over Rome, but he's riding on a donkey, which is sim- symbolic of quite the opposite, actually, of a peaceful entering, of a peaceful um, riding into the city. And the crowd failed to understand the place of suffering. This wasn't going to be, going to be a military revolution. Uh, this Jesus, in this moment, as he's, getting, as he's being praised and honored and Hosanna in the highest, Jesus is still alone in the crowd. He was still the only one who really knew what was happening and what must happen when he entered the city. Nevertheless, the people shouted, Hosanna. They did understand some of the symbolic significance, and they hailed Jesus as King of Israel. Uh, Hosanna literally means, save us now. And the crowd was focused on the present, caught up in the moment. The one on the borrowed colt, however, was focused on eternity. Sure, Jesus is all-powerful. He could have come in and overthrow Rome. No problem but it would mean destruction for all of humanity. Uh, Jesus chose death so that he could establish an everlasting kingdom. Blessed blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is actually from Psalm 118, Psalm 118, verse 26. It It was part of the Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118, that the pilgrims every year would recite during Passover. And actually, interestingly, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is kind of a, it's a, it's a common greeting around Passover. Kind of like on Sunday when you might say, he is risen, and somebody else says, he is risen indeed. Well, if you were at Passover, you might say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's certainly more than a greeting here in this case, right? They're applying it to the person of Jesus. So it has much greater significance. And whether they know it or not, it has an even greater significance because In Psalm 118, where this verse comes, verse 26, the verses just prior to it are actually a prediction of Jesus' death. They kind of missed that part. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Actually, in just a few days, Jesus would recite those very verses when he's teaching in Jerusalem. He knew 
that the day in which God, the Lord, told us to rejoice in, it's not the present day. You know, sometimes you use that verse, this is the, door, this is the day the Lord has made. The this refers to the day Jesus was rejected. This is the day, as in the day he was rejected. That's the day we're rejoicing in. Why? Because that's the day he purchased our salvation. Jesus came to fulfill the entire prophecy, not just the blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord part. He came to be the cornerstone that was rejected. The crowd also shouted, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Uh, I mean, this, this just expresses a real enthusiasm for a political kingdom. And Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised Messiah, the conquering king. He came to sit on the throne of David, to sit up a kingdom that will never end. And yet, this moment was about something else. Or I should say, about the preliminary work. This was about his redemptive mission. This was the reason of his birth, of his righteous life, of everything he taught, of his miracles. And this was a reason for his final trip to Jerusalem. It was time for Jesus to suffer and die and rise from the dead. In the end, the shouts of praise were not surprising. In fact, Jesus may have actually instigated them. Jesus may have intentionally designed or, or wanted them to happen, right? Because, again, he knew he needed to fulfill prophecy. This is the moment that he had been anticipating. This was his time to publicly testify that he is the promised Messiah. And, get this, Jesus may have desired perhaps even provoked or helped along, I'm not sure if it needed it, but desired the crowd to praise him, to acknowledge him as the Messiah so that he could provoke opposition. Jesus is ready for the Jewish leaders to take notice and to arrest him. The irony is thick. The people want Jesus to come in and take over the city to put, uh, put away Rome. And Jesus is making himself known so that he can be crushed. Not so he can be a leader, but that so he can be crucified. Well, Jesus did enter Jerusalem. And verse 12 tells us what happened. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Uh, Matthew gives us a little more insight there. He says that, Matthew says that the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So there's a large crowd in, in the city, and most had heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. Most, again, are wondering if Jesus would come. They're wondering because I can't, he, he came. Jesus came. We wondered if he was come because we know the leaders are ready to take him out. What's going to happen? It was late, though, so Jesus went straight to the temple. The goal of his journey was not Jerusalem in general. It was the temple in particular. He had arrived at his destination, indeed his destiny. And what happened next? No uprising. No kingdom established. Jesus looked around and went home. Coming, commenting on this verse, one of my university professors said, Jesus enters the temple alone, and having sized it up, he leaves for Bethany with his disciples. 
Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but he is veiled and unrecognized. Even when he stands at the center of Israel's faith, he stands alone. It's Easter season, we remember that Jesus' mission was accomplished through humility and suffering. And again, as ambassadors for Christ, we are on a mission to be humble. We we expect and anticipate suffering as as a part of our calling as Christians. So we want to stay focused to avoid worldly distractions and earthly distractions so that we can stay on mission, so we can stay our course, so we can follow the example of our Savior, Christ. Jesus was, in many ways, alone in a crowd. And even on the day that was so full of celebration, so full of festivities, in many ways, he was alone even at his coronation and the triumphal entry. But Jesus was accomplishing what would enable us to be no longer alone, but united to him. And that's why I want to want to conclude with this kind of final point here that gets to the heart of Christ. You see, for Jesus, his, his calling, His coronation, His crucifixion, they were all grounded in His compassion. In fact, Jesus is most often described as compassionate. Compassion reflect his, reflects His deepest heart. Our sin and suffering evoke His strongest affections and deepest desires of sympathy, comfort, correction, and a desire to rescue us from this broken, sin-cursed world. Uh, We see a window into that, into that heart, with the events that happened immediately after Jesus entered Jerusalem. We see that Jesus, in some ways, is alone in his compassion. As I said, Jesus was full of compassion because the people were blind. They were blind to their need for saving grace. Jesus was also concerned because people were trading the worship of God for the worship of self. In response, Jesus wept and Jesus warned. He desires people to trust him and to turn from their sin. At least three times Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. At least three times when Jesus thought about Jerusalem and his people, it brought him to weeping. Now, none of, those are, none of those things, times are recorded in Mark, so we're actually go to Luke chapter 13. Here in Luke 13, 34, we read, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jerusalem had kind of this unsavory reputation for killing prophets. But Jesus was more than a prophet, right? Jesus is their Savior. And and with tenderness and compassion, he longed for his people to take refuge in him, but they refused. Uh, These verses actually anticipate the triumphal entry. Jesus prayed this prayer, lamented this lament, back when, he was, when Herod had wanted to kill him. 
That very same lament is recorded in Matthew 23, after the triumphal entry. Which is not surprising because it seems almost every time Jesus thinks about the city of Jerusalem, he has these compassionate outbursts. In Matthew's gospel there, another time when he lamented over the city, it's, it's, he uses blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in the sense of his second coming. But the where I want to focus a little bit more is on the third lament that occurred as Jesus approached the city during his triumphal entry. In Luke 19, we read about Jesus lamenting over the city. So the picture here is he comes to Bethany, Bethphage. He gets the colt and the donkey. He's riding towards the city. The people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And before he gets to the city, we read in Luke 19 these words. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus had a deep and abiding compassion for Jerusalem, his people. So when the son of David... Israel's promised Messiah saw Jerusalem and he knew the events that would unfold in the week ahead. He wept. He wept not for himself. He wept for the people. That word wept has the idea of wailed. Jesus sobbed as he lamented. The emotions and the weight is heavy and burdensome to him. God's people did not know the things that make for peace. Uh, Ironically, Jerusalem means the foundation of peace, right? Shalom, Jerusalem. The foundation of peace, especially in view here, is this peace with God. So the city of peace did not have peace with God, even as the Prince of Peace rode into its gates. But what are the things that make for peace? Well, we have peace with God through justification by faith, purchased at the cross. Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. But these kind of things, these realities, this suffering servant, Isaiah 53, truce, that Jesus would be crushed for our iniquities, they were blind to what makes for peace. And as a result, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was inevitable. Jesus Jesus described the kind of typical siege used by enemies to overthrow a city. In this case, the city would, would be captured and destroyed. And the reason given was in verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, God's people did not accept God's promised Messiah. They failed to recognize the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. They failed to understand Jesus' teaching about himself and his mission. They failed to acknowledge the miracles that authenticated Jesus' claims. And so, Jesus wept. He wept with compassion. The compassion was warranted because destruction was imminent. Israel is the withered fig tree, dried up and unfruitful. Their rejection of the Messiah would soon culminate in his crucifixion. It will require catastrophic 
devastation and destruction to fulfill God's discipline that they've provoked in order for them to trust him for their salvation. So during Passover, and what seemed a time to rejoice and to celebrate, during, during the triumphal entry, and what seemed like, like such a, a glorious and exalting of the king sort of time, Jesus mourned. He alone understood the full weight of Holy Week. He alone had a heart full of compassion. He alone knew the deceived and depraved hearts of the people. And he alone anticipated uh, the brutal death at the hands of those he came to save. So he lamented Jerusalem's barren spiritual condition. And he did so alone. But we also need to see that his compassion is active. He feels the weight, but he also is motivated into action. It takes the, he takes the initiative to love and confront others. Now, as we already saw, after Jesus entered Jerusalem, he scouted out the temple. Right? We saw that in Mark 11, 11. He scouted the temple, went back to Bethlehem. Well, the next day on Monday, where does he go? He goes to the temple, this time with a compassionate anger. Uh, he returned to the temple to purify the marketplace extortion. Passover was big business, right? Passover was your cash cow. Merchants could inflate prices, raise exchange rates, compromise quality, and take advantage of the pilgrims who needed to make sacrifices. And the scale of the, this commercial operation was, just, I mean, it was staggering. It, it's estimated that a single vendor could sell 3,000 sheep a day. I mean, hundreds of thousands of lambs were sacrificed during Passover. And this kind of market arena here was happening in the court of Gentiles, which is about 35 acres in size. So this is, this is a big undertaking here. Instead of facilitating worship, however, the atmosphere deteriorated into greed-driven marketplace agenda that provoked Jesus' wrath. And so he kind of he disrupts all the, the transactions. You know what happens? He's, he's flipping over tables. He's, he's even preventing the sacrifices from happening. After cleansing the, tep, the temple, Jesus justified his actions by, by quoting from, from Isaiah 56 and, and Jeremiah 7. Those verses point out that Jesus came to save all nations, that, that, that the temple was actually meant to be a witness place for the Gentiles to come and to receive salvation. And the, Jeremiah 7 confronts their false worship. So Jesus is saying, you've, you've totally perverted the temple and its purpose. As a result, the Jewish leaders feared Jesus, and they strengthened their resolve to kill him. The power-craving Pharisees feared Jesus would take the people's allegiance away from them. The entire scene is just another example of Jesus alone in a crowd. Uh, no doubt, I mean, the temple was just packed with people, but Jesus was the only person who saw the corruption and took action. I think Jesus' heart is instructive for us. He exemplifies genuine compassion for the lost and an uncompromising commitment to true worship. In response, kind of as we close here, we should ask, what makes you weep? Jesus wept at the devastating consequences of sin. He wept at people's blindness to the gospel and the thought of them perishing. This Easter season, 
Uh, we, we worship a, a crucified Savior, and we rejoice in His victory over death. It's also appropriate to weep at the sin that required Holy Week and to weep for those who still don't know the significance of these events. The church should be full of believers who share this concern over lost souls and preach the gospel in light of coming judgment. See, compassion says, I'm for that. Compassion says, I'm for that. Jesus was deeply burdened with love and concern for His people. He was troubled by their hindrances to worship. And anger says, I'm against that. Jesus was against exploiting the temple and Passover for selfish gain. He was angry because the weak, poor, and vulnerable were victims of greed. The same heart that wept over Jerusalem turned over the tables. Both were motivated by a longing for God's people to turn away from false religion and trust Him for genuine soul-transforming salvation. Thus, in compassion, you and I, we weep for those who don't know Christ. And with anger, we oppose those things that exploit the vulnerable and hinder the gospel. At this point, in a matter of days, Jesus would find Himself alone in the crowd, only this time the mob wouldn't cheer and celebrate. They wouldn't watch in amazement as He turned tables. Instead, they would mock Him and demand death. As we move into Holy Week, as we, as we think about Jesus' journey, His life, His arrival in the city, and His actions within the city, let's worship, let's weep, and let's pray that we may win souls with the gospel. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we've taken just this extended time to think about the life of Christ leading up to that day many years ago when He entered into the city. There are events that we want to be pressed upon our hearts because of all that they entail, all the significance wrapped up in them. So Lord, I just ask as we think here on Palm Sunday and, and move into Holy Week leading up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday that our hearts would be full of the life, the perfect righteous life of Christ, of His heart, His compassion, and yet His hatred and of sin and his anger towards those who would ex exploit the gospel and the, the truth. Father, give us a heart like the heart of Christ. May we see him and, ha and express the same heart, a deep longing for those to, unsaved to know you. And I pray also that we'd enter into this week just with a heart of worship. We're, we're so grateful that Jesus, you walked the path alone. You bore the wrath of your Father so that we could be your children. We worship you, Jesus. We worship you in song, with our life, and with our faithful obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.